Hey, one quick thing before we get started. I just want to remind you that this podcast is for information, education, and entertainment. It is not a substitute for therapy or therapeutic interventions. If you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or contact a crisis hotline. On today's episode of the Labors of Love podcast, I am joined by my friend, Vicki Smith-Denny. We talk about our friendship, we talk about her experience as an Irish immigrant, and we talk about how she's contributed to my personal commitment to sharing my voice with the world. Let's jump in. Hey everyone, it's LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast. Super excited today to be doing a friend cast, and my special guest is a very good friend of mine, Miss Vicki Smith-Denny. Hi, Vicki. Hello, how are you? I am wonderful. So excited to talk to you. Um, you know, this one, y'all listeners, <laughs> this one is kind of going to be like, you're just eavesdropping welcomed eavesdropping uh-huh. into just a fantastic conversation with a good friend of mine. So Vicki, thank you for being here. Of course, my honor. So let, let's start with how we met. I mean, I know we both know, but I always find it interesting when people have slightly different versions of the same story. So let's start with yours. What, <laughs> what's your memory of how we met and how our friendship blossomed? I I want to say our first class was spiritual formation. We had that, I think, like one night a week. Um, it went from like six to nine at night or something ridiculous. And I remember you sitting right up front and, it, you know, that our school was a pretty conservative school. Uh, we're taking spiritual formation. And I remember you just shooting straight in those classes, like being just so direct by like, well, I don't really know about that. Like, but how does that, you know, where is this practically? Like definitely like saying like, this is obviously a value, but how does this actually like meet people where it's needed? And then it evolved from there. That makes it sound super professional. Um, we've definitely had our share of like laughs and silliness, like totally along the way. And I've definitely very fond memories of you throughout grad school that I hope come up during our conversation. I'm sure they'll come up. So, <laughs> um, who was the teacher for the spiritual formations class? Tim Barber. Dr. Okay. Tim Barber. Yes. Okay. See, I was like, what was the name of that? Listen, I just show up. I can't even tell you. I remember the, <laughs> the classes. I was like, that's not nearly good enough. What are you talking about? Yes. Okay. Got it. So interestingly, so I don't remember what came first, where I remember you first from, which is fair because this, this is not where our relationship started. But I what we were mm-hmm. taking a class, don't remember which one, but um, Stephanie taught the class, Stephanie mm-hmm. Young. Oh, and yeah. uh, so it was kind of, oh, I don't know, human development. And don't ask me, it was some class, good class, right? Right. But I remember Vicky. Now, uh-huh. at this point, Vicky sat up in the front and I did not know <laughs> you. And, you know, we talked, but we each had to do a presentation is what I remember. Mm-hmm. Everyone had to take a part of human development 
and do a presentation. And I just remember when Vicki did her presentation, she said something. I was like, wait a minute what's that accent? It was like the first time I realized, and then you started talking about it. So, um, here's the thing up until now you, I can almost guarantee you haven't noticed. Right. My lovely friend is Irish Mm -hmm. and and there are some words that she says and you're like, Oh, so that, that's what I remember like in regards Mm -hmm. to piquing my interest, like, Oh, but where our relationship really started to get close is through practicum we had to do groups and we were partnered. And so uh, Vicky and I would have to travel out to a place called Cleves, which was probably 20. Like, yeah, about 20 minutes from 20 Cincinnati. minutes from Cincinnati and we would ride together. And y'all, this was just, this was good times. We got to know each other so well. You know, by the time we, now that we're in 2020, this may seem like, I know my experience is like, oh, whatever. Like you see it all the time, but this would have been in 2016. Were the girls born yet? Yeah. So right around 2016, Mm -hmm. um, pre-election. And this Mm -hmm. is kind of the first time I really was like, oh word, that's a Confederate flag. Just waving, just flying high, you know, there, and, and they were often paired with like Trump pit signs. Right. And so this was this whole experience for me of going out into a more rural area around Cincinnati, um, to say it lacked diversity would be an understatement. So here I am, right. You know, me, uh, this big bodied black woman full of personality rolling out to this very rural, uh, environment and you know I got with me my Irish homie and we're getting ready to go you know do some groups for some at-risk youth (laughs) and and, you know it was good times I mean we learned a lot about ourselves about each other um, and and the youth we really enjoyed it they were a hoot and so that that's where we really had the time for Mm -hmm. our relationship Mm -hmm. to flourish and then it was just kind of like it was on from there yeah, it was. Yeah, that was always, that was, I think, an interesting experience for both of us to kind of sign up for. I think we were working through a curriculum or something and we did that kind of, I, I believe, no, that was practicum. I wondered if it was group therapy. That was kind of our first taste of groups was in this kind of rural, small church, really, mm-hmm. with any kids that wanted to join. There really was, they weren't recruited or anything. They, we just needed warm bodies in a group room and we ran it yeah and they came to the church because uh it was in the community mm-hmm. and you know it it met some needs it created a place mm-hmm. of gathering and safety food yeah shelter food, home help with homework yeah and so it's very a, a very uh, central point and pivotal place in this community um yeah and it was it was really good and the interesting thing kind of like i said pre-election but i do remember I don't, it was it, um, people were sitting on a porch across from the church. And I just remember them coming over and someone making it at express point to let me know they were voting for Hillary. Uh, so that, that probably gave me more of an, okay, I, I, I see what's happening here. I did view it as an attempt of them trying to make me feel safe, right. you know, and create yeah. community in that way. Um, so yeah, it was just very interesting. And to think that that was like, so long ago, it, it boggles my mind how fast time flies. So one thing that I definitely said, you know, I would love to talk about because 
we haven't really talked about it since then. Um, and I think my listeners would really benefit from hearing is uh, hearing about your immigrant experience mm-hmm. here in America um, and what that's been like for you and how you contrast that to what you perceive as other immigrant experiences that may not be like yours. Right. And and here's the thing. It's so different because you've kind of got, you know, it's different for every immigrant, I think, that comes through um, the U.S. or tries to, you know, live here, work here, have family here. And I know for me, you know, I came in under a student visa, first of all, um, and then uh, married an American. Uh, but I definitely was super aware of, I think it was made more aware to me during the green card process of just how inaccessible that process is. Uh, the documentation itself is so tricky. And and I'm an educated person. I've got a master's degree. And there was genuinely questions on there that I would tell myself, like, what is this even trying to say? I really don't know. I worded very weirdly, or I would have a paper, like one of the six applications I sent in um, would be sent back to me. And you would have someone look over it and they'd say, well, actually, I just think that, you know, they didn't see it or something else, you know, some sort of minor error, nothing wrong with my documentation at all. I was also really surprised that when I got married, so many people would say to me, oh, but aren't you good because you're married? And I was like, why is it that people just tend to, to write me off? So I definitely did a lot of like exploration about that. A lot of people just assumed um, that I wouldn't have to do the application process of a lot of other people. And I honestly came down to the conclusion of it's that I'm white and that I'm educated and that I come from a country that's, you know, people love Ireland, right? Like it's a, it's a super popular tourist destination. People love it. And I think a lot of folks just kind of thought that I either had my foot in the door or something. Uh, so I kind of got acclimatized here in the U.S. to kind of two different mixed messages. One of, you know, the melting pot that, hey, like pe- the amount of people that would tell me that, oh, I'm Irish too, I'm 3%, right? Or my great, great, great grandmother came over here. Um, but then at the same time, be very much like, okay, well, this is what it means to be American. I wasn't used to flags and churches. I wasn't used to the intertwining of nationality and religion. Uh, and we went to a pretty conservative school. So at 18, to kind of arrive over here, and have that kind of exposure, that's a whole other dimension too. So I would say that it's, it's kind of changed as I've, you know, gotten older and faced different things. So I'm a green card holder, which means I still cannot vote here despite, you know, being here for 10 years. So it's really interesting to, you know, be part of the part of it. I'm employed here. I play taxes here. I'm married. I own a house here, um, but still really have no say, but, but a lot of people assume that I do. So it's, it's such an interesting part of society. I think kind of just the immigration story and, and it is so different, but I've been very aware of my privilege throughout it. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, of course. You know, it's so profound uh that one I can't lie I thought once you married an American you was cool too and I think (laughs) the reason that happens is because for me that's media that's Mm -hmm. like the movie you know that you see where you know you just gotta find you an American person to marry and you know all of your immigration problems are are solved so you know I definitely think that that influenced that for me 
But in part of what I'm, what I was thinking as you were talking is um, being white bodied Mm -hmm. is about as American as it gets for most people, Mm -hmm. right? So when people say American, they think white-bodied. And so how many people would never assume, would never know, would never like think twice to say, oh, she may not be from here. Maybe until you started talking. And again, it's so nuanced that they would have to catch a word or two to make them think. And then Mm -hmm. honestly, I think they would just kind of be like, oh, maybe she's not from here, but they don't necessarily mean not from this country. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's just this assumption. Oh, you know, she's an American citizen. But then I think about how many Latinx people mm-hmm. like walk around every day and the assumption is immediately you're not from here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Where are you and from? I, right. And I think even I've gotten when I say, oh, I'm from Ireland, people will try and argue me the other way and be like, oh, but you were born here, right? And I'm like, no. <laughs> no, I, I don't mean that. Yeah, <laughs> like I'm I'm actually meaning it when I'm saying I'm Irish. Like I'm legit. Like <laughs> so yeah, it's such a polar opposite. You know, so many people really want I think me to fit that rhetoric of no, but you were born here, right? And I was like, absolutely not. I didn't move over here until I was 18 years old. Mm-hmm. And and the fact that you could literally probably go your whole life and never hear go back to where you came from. Right. You know, that that would not be something that someone would hurl at you because looking at you, you, they, it's just, it's how that is. And, and there are, you know, Latin American, African American, Asian American, you name any hyphenated American person who was born here. And the automatic assumption would be, oh, well, (laughs) you know, no, you arrived here sometime after your birth. So I just, I always appreciated being able to have these conversations and talk about your perspective Mm -hmm. because it's definitely a unique one. I mean, as like you said, every person's experience is unique, but it's Mm -hmm. definitely when immigration was like this huge platform uh, during the elections of 2016, Um, it was very interesting to be able to have a friend Mm -hmm. to talk to who was also an immigrant, but just did not fit this narrative that Mm -hmm. was being espoused and, and that people were focusing on and, and how it was pretty scary too, because you're like, I just remember all of these immigration laws and things were going to be passed that impacted you Mm -hmm. and how easy it also would be for people to be like, oh, it doesn't like you would, you're definitely impacted by those decisions and what that would mean. So Thank you for that. That, that, that's very helpful. Um, so how's life here in the States? <laughs> I mean, I've right. been here for a while, right? But yeah, yeah, just uh, there, there, I do believe that there is a high probability that many Americans may never truly have deep or meaningful conversations with people who were socialized and culturalized for the mm-hmm. beginning of their lives in a different environment and country than the U.S. And so, yeah, can you talk to us a little bit about just what your experiences has been, observations? What's what's it like being sure. over here? Yeah, I remember, so I moved over at 18 for college, and I remember by, I was here, well, August, September kind of time, and by Christmas time, I was burnt out. Like I had no idea how to function in the U.S. And I kind of concluded it down to the pace of life. It's unsustainable. It truly is. Um, Irish people, everything's closed on Sundays. Most things close at 5 p.m. And, you know, gas is like nine or 10 bucks a gallon. So if you're going to go far, you better plan for it. 
so with that, I don't know what it was. It was just with everything so accessible here at the drop of a hat, you know, you need something, you're going to find it within a probably 50 mile radius. And those, the expectations that come with that, uh, it's just such a piece of life that has been, I had, thankfully I did college here, honestly, because I think that really helped awesome prep me to work in America uh which is good a bad thing I think if I had just come out here solely for work I could have struggled a little bit there's a lot of we call them bank holidays back home and, and we get a lot of them we get like one a month um maternity leave is like nine months you know there's just so much in there that had I come straight into the working world here I just wouldn't have been prepared for so on the work side of things you've got that um Irish people are very social too. So we will drop into each other's homes all the time, um, visit a lot. And I think the kind of lone ranger independent mentality was something that was so new for me when I moved over here. So I think that first, those first few years, I felt pretty lonely, um, but also felt like it was all on me and certain parts of me thrived with that and certain parts did not. And you know, that was 10 years ago. So it was like a long time now. And I, I will tell you, and I'm sure any immigrant friend or relative or, you know, work acquaintance will tell you that the immigrant experience has had a very different rhetoric these last four years. Um, and I honestly don't believe you'll see more people talking about it until things change again, you know, of just like, they feel they're in the clear. You won't find any, I think throughout these four years, the only person who's had any kind of insight into my political views is honestly my husband. Uh, And we've kept those so tight and so almost secretive because like you said, I don't think that I'm going to go out into the street and someone's going to tell me to go back where I came from. But I think there's a lot of different views that I would hold that, you know, if I throw something up on Facebook, like you'll find zero political posts in any of my social media. Mm -hmm. And very cognizant of the fact that that could absolutely be thrown at me. And, and I really feel like on, I, and I will know that this is not true logically. And I would never say this to someone in my position, but I seriously would feel like I can't post something until I'm a citizen or mm-hmm. until, you know, if I do that path, because like otherwise, you know, you do run yourself risk for that. Tell me the difference between being a green card holder and a citizen. Like, mm. I don't know. <laughs> so you said that right. and I'm like, so that card doesn't make you a citizen. Tell me more. Yeah. So, um, different paths to being a resident here in the U S you can opt for. So I came out on a student visa, which, you know, is totally linked into your education. Um, but then went for a green card when I got married to my husband. Now you can only apply, this is, I don't know, it's been a minute since I looked at it, but to my knowledge, you have to be a green card holder for three years before you can apply to be a citizen. But some people, what they do is you, first of all, they put you on a two year conditional green card. Um, and after those two years, you reapply again, kind of, you know, are you still married? Are you still have a job that does this? Is this based on being an entrepreneur. So after the two years, then you apply for a 10 year one. And then from then on in, you just get 10 year ones until if you ever decide that you just want to do green cards. The limitation with just being a green card holder is that you can't vote. Mm -hmm. So three years into the 
green card. So you get your two year and then you apply for your 10 year, one year into the 10 year, I believe um, that is when you can begin the path to, to citizenship. And I don't know if you've seen some stuff in the media with that of um, adding more questions to that to make it more difficult. Um, and I think there's a lot of anxiety about taking that test. You know, if that's the path that, you know, I choose for myself of like, okay, what's this going to be like? And I've known some people to take it and have just said it's super difficult so that would kind of be the difference what kind of questions are they asking on this test is it like history some of it is history yes. i would fail uh-huh. i'm glad i was born here i suck at history <laughs> uh-huh. you can do i think you can get online and do some like sample tests and things like that and i think they have seen that a lot of americans actually do don't pass it yeah pretty poorly right we just kind of get a pass because we're here <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's probably some, maybe some things I probably should know, right? Mm-hmm. <sighs> that, that sounds exhausting. Like that's the word that came up for me mm-hmm. is uh, a constant hypervigilance in one way. But just when you talked about the different kind of lifestyle here than what, were you, what you were accustomed to um, in Ireland, it really hit me. It, it took me back to, um, so I, I think I was 15 Um, and for Christmas, my family, my mom and dad and I went to London, Mm -hmm. Ontario in Canada. And I think it was my mom. I I don't know. I think we went to shop. Clearly that wasn't my decision. I didn't like shopping, but you know, we went, we got away. It's fine. And we might've gotten there on a, maybe a Friday or a Saturday, but all I know is that that Sunday or maybe it was whatever it was, everything was just closed. And I remember my parents being like, well, they didn't anticipate that. And how we just had to relax. Like there were no other options. We had to just be. And that might have been the very first experience I had of even a conscious awareness that there was a difference. And growing up in Detroit, I literally lived, my grandmother lived less than five minutes away from the Ambassador Bridge. And you could hop over and I've gone to family gatherings and all of this stuff, the casinos, because you could gamble mm-hmm. at 19 instead of 21. So going to Canada didn't feel like going to a different country to me. That was insane. Mm-hmm. That was like crossing from Michigan to Ohio for me. You didn't need a passport or any of that. And so that was an experience that I had often. But the further we went away from that border, I was like, wow, th- this really is a different place. It felt different. Right. You now it just, and so I can imagine coming from a place where things actually shut down and rest is valued. And so is community mm-hmm. and connection and in a, in a way that um, may be an isolated or community here in certain communities, but mm-hmm. not as the overall culture must've maybe been a little culture shock. For sure. And I think there's something to be said, even as you talk about that isolated community, we don't have drive through ATMs. That is never something I have seen. And I don't know if you've seen this, but they tried to push out over here this drive-through funeral home visitation situation a while back yeah (laughs) I am unaware it's it's something to behold but (laughs) even just the idea that you're saying about that like isolated community like isolating it even to your very vehicle like think about the amount of things drive through dry dry cleaners drive through atms drive through funeral visitations like you can pretty much do so much without even having to leave your vehicle Whereas that was not a thing over there. 
so as you're talking about that, and, and let's not forget, I've never been to Vegas. It's on the list, but I hear you can get a drive-through <laughs> wedding and a drive-through divorce. <laughs> so, right. See, right? there are all of these like <laughs> communal community things that are now, like you said, in your car. So what it, what, what you're saying has made me think about 2020 mm-hmm. COVID and the, 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 um, increase in isolation and loneliness right. that's being experienced. But what's interesting is as much as I'm aware of that, you know, we're both counselors, we definitely yeah. can see the impact of that. Mm-hmm. I think when I hear you talk, what comes up for me is like, dang, if we already started out more isolated, <laughs> if in a way right. that we don't even know as Americans, if we, if we're already in a position where like this thing, we're more isolated, and then you put something like COVID on top of it, it, it really does like, ooh, I, I hadn't thought about it maybe from that view. So right. talk a little bit about COVID, for example. Mm-hmm. How has COVID impacted you? So that you're hitting on so many different facets for me. Um, family are all back in Ireland, so it limited travel for sure. Uh, and I don't go, get to go back that often because uh, if you want to go, you got to make a long trip out of it. It's not really feasible all the time. So knowing that I couldn't go back though was a whole different story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're, you know, doing okay. They've had more lockdowns than what we've had, and, and somehow they're still, you know, going by. And and I I don't know any of the mental health stats with them at all. But I know even professionally for me, I'm an addictions therapist. I work at a um, a rehab here in Indianapolis. And what I've seen the impact of this isolation on them has been a whole other story. You know, I remember it was March 16th that I had to tell everyone, hey, you got to go. We've got to, we've got to move to virtual. We have to figure this thing out. Insurance hasn't figured it out yet. So honestly, I don't know what's next. Um, And I've seen just a different face of mental health and of addiction creep up as a result. They looked at me that day and they were like, Vicky, we've got isolation on lock. Like we know exactly what to do. This won't be hard, but, and I don't know if you've worked with anyone, LaShonda, but I've worked with a client who used to talk to me about being in solitary confinement and she would just be able to say solitary confinement and would burst into tears. And Mm. like that always stuck with me of just the torture of just being alone, not seeing another human face. And, you know, right now I'm running group therapy, but I have a mask on the whole time. And my clients even looked at me last week and they're like, can we see your face? Like, can we just see it? Yeah. And it's like, what an interesting time to be alive. You know, like this isn't what we got education for, like, you know, (laughs) to wear a mask and some days I'm wearing a face shield and it's, you know, everything's going on. Um, But to be kind, some people who don't even really know what I look like. Uh, it's just such a wild, you know, place to be in and, and really seeing it affect, you know, I, I know that I purely work within the addicted realm and seeing how it's impacting them, impacting their involvement in 12 step or smart recovery, any kind of soap or support outside of that has just been really hard. So that's definitely a nuance, like how it's been impacting me there. We got brought back, um, uh, by the end of May, I was back running live programming again. But then again, we're six feet apart. Everyone's got a mask on and mm-hmm. there's a bit of like a sterileness to it. 
that we didn't have before. You know, you walk into my group room pre-COVID, every chair was right beside each other. Uh, we really, I loved just working with my environment and now I working with what's really hard. Like, how do you build connection with other people when that's what the environment is? That is so, when I heard you say, like, I'm counseling people and they, they don't even know what really what I look like Yeah, in a way that I, whoa, obviously, I mean, I've been alive in 2020. I'm a counselor, Mm -hmm. but it's so different. You know, the, the worlds we, the water we swim in, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's very different. I'm, you know, private pay, private practice, right. You know, there is an intentionality, Mm -hmm. um, that comes with my services. Mm-hmm. Um, and then not that some of my people don't struggle with substance use and substance abuse, mm-hmm. but you are working in those waters. And when we have learned more through neuroscience and more information that, you know, if people who are struggling with addiction of any kind, community and connection mm-hmm. are the things that really are the glue to their sobriety right? and their recovery. Mm-hmm. And now we're taking it away. Like it, it just, yeah, it, it has wreaked havoc on, on what that looks like. And I can say like, we're figuring it out. Mm-hmm. We don't always have like the, but whatever the best solution is, but we're figuring it out. And, and I think that is definitely like honorable and noble, but it's hard. Mm. Oh (laughs) yeah. Things that we could make with people, just facial expressions, like for people to understand that we are uh, communal animals as humans. Mm -hmm. And so whether you realize it or not, reading the facial expressions and the nonverbals of another human is how the species has survived. So we have right. the mirror neurons and our, our survival is dependent upon being mm-hmm. able to see what that person's whole face looks like. And so then right. if you have a person too, who's wearing a mask and glasses, uh-huh. your central nervous system is going to kick into sympathetic. Do I need to run or fight right. or shut down whether you know it or not? Because that's scary. I need to be mm-hmm. able to see their faces. Why do you think like, bank robbers wear masks. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Some of it is a concealed identity, but it brings with it a fear. Now they don't realize that they don't know necessarily neuroscience when they decide to rob a bank or (laughs) rob whatever, but we really are. And I remember early COVID having a conversation with someone that not only, yeah, sure. Not being able to see someone else's face Mm -hmm. can be, uh, kind of scary, but when I see people moving away from me, it makes me feel like I'm a threat. So that's across the right. board. But then imagine people who um, have already been stigmatized as a threat, Black men, Black women, or people of mm-hmm. color, big people, people whose bodies are bigger, you know, all of these right. things that, you know, culturally have already stigmatized people. Now there's another factor going into that. And that wreaks havoc on our mental health and our ability to connect with each other in ways that we're going to start seeing data about in about five years. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, cause even right now as well, the one thing that Irish people will often ask me about how the mask was politicized here. 
and how did that happen and where did that go and and even then you know the one thing we talk about in group therapy is we never talk about religion we never talk about politics and lo and behold of course COVID is gonna bring that into the room because we're all mandated to wear masks and all of a sudden we were dealing with that too you know Mm-hmm. And here's the thing, you know, I'm sure you see some people in grocery stores and they're not wearing them and you're like, oh, what does that say? And, you know, it, it has become that you're subliminally just reading people for that. Mm-hmm. And making the assumption. Mm-hmm. I caught myself this whole natural human thing. I caught it and I was like, that is so interesting. I right. caught myself if anyone, doesn't matter who it was, mm-hmm. said like they had tested positive for COVID this immediate thing would pop up and it was almost as if well they didn't do something they were supposed to do mm-hmm. like it, 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 i would net like this i have to help people understand when you are constantly trying to do your work i'm talking about this implicit thing that came up i would never say that you would never catch me saying well what didn't you do or you deserve it but this implicit like it's almost as if this is the leprosy HIV, you know, these things that happen and what, and what begins to happen is individually our implicit narratives based on these messages we give. And then we rally together and say, well, they must've done something. It must've been your fault. Like bed bugs, same thing, but you must've done something. These things that you know what, they don't actually have a whole lot to do with what you did or didn't do. And while there are precautions, yes. How many people then are afraid to disclose that they've tested positive for COVID? Mm -hmm. Because if I tell you I've tested positive for COVID, are you going to think it's my fault? Are you going to think I wasn't cautious? Are you going to think, you know, all of these different things. And so that is just another layer of something they have to hold inside. Mm-hmm. Another thing they have to shoulder themselves or they're keeping uh, close to the chest. And again, the magnitude of impact of COVID mm-hmm. in the years to come, as we start to get data and people start to make sense of that data, right. I think we will look back and say, my God, I lived through that. Oh, absolutely. It is definitely this profound moment in global history. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, it it is something to be alive. Yeah. And I think even for for the addicted world, as long as there's any kind of, um, you know, precautions still in place, a lot of my folks are still kind of suffering in silence. You know, they're still just at home. If they're working from home, it's really fed into a lot of folks with substance abuse disorder, some of the symptoms there and let them kind of roll rife. But, but I'll tell you, ever since we opened live programming, working with a lot of nurses and a lot of teachers. Nurses and teachers. Mm-hmm. It's, I work a lot with teachers specifically trying to get a school district to understand that you can't use the same matrix for evaluation and assessment mm-hmm. in 2020 that you've used in the past has been really challenging because mm-hmm. so because when the expectations don't change but everything that you need in order to meet those expectations does right that's 
crazy making. That is anxiety provoking. Of course, people are depressed. Of course, they're turning to things that would help distance them from that pain. Alcohol, right? Even some of the things people used to turn to, they don't have access anymore. Sex. You know what I mean? Like, I would even imagine like, so that I don't know how this is going to sound, but it doesn't matter. Um, I, I want to know how drug dealers are doing. Mm. Like how has the drug business been impacted? And I don't mean pharmacy. I mean, you know, your street <laughs> drug dealer where you could go and meet this person. Like how has that been impacted by that? And, and the reason I'm curious is because when people who have used substances Mm -hmm. to survive and all of those things, their access to that is limited. That doesn't go like, Oh, I guess I'll quit. It is. I'll use whatever I can. So then you have people turning to substances that are not even remotely safe, but they're using them because of access. And so I I'm just, I have so many curiosities about just so much. So yes, any other ways that, uh, let's broaden it out a little bit and say 2020, (laughs) Right. there was so much with 2020. One of the big things, um, for me in 2020 was, um, this awakening to activism, Mm -hmm. um, specific to racial injustice, racism, and things like that. Um, can you talk about what that was like playing out for you. Right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Multiple levels here. Where to even start? Where to even start? Um, yeah, I think you can't be to me, if you're really working within the mental health field, you've, you've got to be an advocate. I don't, I don't, I just don't see how you can be working in mental health and not want to just advocate for your people. So Seeing it, you know, a lot of the year, like I said, I was barely on virtual for that long and they brought me back. They had me running a live programming and I was running a co-ed group for a while. Um, I predominantly work with women, um, but just cause of, you know, they wanted to bring us back slowly. Um, so they brought me back. I had a co-ed group and I know it keeps coming back to work for me, but I know that I have a lot of my most meaningful moments just in the group room with folks. Um, Cause it brings it all to a micro level, you know, like, cause it's easy. You know, I know that my husband and I um, went to marches. We talked to people, we tried to do our research, we tried them and we still acknowledged our limitations. We will never understand. Right. But we've got to figure out where we fit in in that. And we've got to figure out our privilege. But I remember going back into the group room. It was my first week back. And, you know, we process underlying reasons for use. We talk about everything. When you work in substance use, you talk about everything. And one of my guys, African-American male looks at me and and says, I'm really anxious. I was like, okay, well, what's going on? What's going on? And he's like, you don't know what it is to be on the street and and be so scared to take your wallet out of your pocket because you don't know how it's going to be interpreted. And I remember just being like, you're right. And And in that moment, LaShonda, I was like, grad school never prepared me for this (laughs) like nothing prepared me for that how Mm -hmm. do you work with someone to desensitize that right like how do you even help with that I remember watching um there's a a documentary called drunk in public and and we air it sometimes in 
um, the treatment center in which I work with, and it just kind of catches the progression of alcoholism and catches this guy's uh, decline into his addiction. But it does it mostly with footage from in and out of jail. And I remember one of my guys, I said, okay, open it up, feedback, observations. And one of my guys was, he was like, if, if that was me, African-American male, if that was me, I would have been killed. If that was me, like, I wouldn't have been in and out as many times as he did. And he was in, and the guy in the documentary was in and out like 500 times. And you do sit and think, you know, we won't even get into the stats of kind of the racial injustice with addiction treatment and addiction and mm-hmm. the amount of, you know, how are, you know, you go into any treatment center in the U.S. right now and it does not represent the people that need help. But then as, you know, the amount of folks that I work with that'll come in and, and have a total dis- a total distrust for institution. Why would they trust me? Uh, why would they want to seek help? The very system has just tore them down. So I, so we see that and we need to do such a, so, a, so much of a better job there. But yeah, I think seeing, you know, I don't know if people, and, and this is, you know, I've listened to your podcast, talk about it, you know, was the, fo- was the whole world finally listening because of COVID to stuff that was had already been going on for years, but now they were just kind of, you know, forced to sit down for a minute and actually process it. Um, and I think, you know, that's where in, in some, and some people couldn't sit with that. Right. And we saw some of that come up, but yeah, I think seeing it on the front lines with clients and, and just, you know, and I, and I know that this is where you've been really helpful as a peer for, for me and just showing me resources for the racial trauma trainings because that wasn't something we talked about and we had folks that really wanted to provide us with really good training for the field um, but I don't think we were in any way prepared for 2020. <laughs> no. No. <clears throat> we just weren't and you know I think and I have said that 2020 had great potential to help people lean into compassion and empathy. Um, but we know that all things don't meet their potential always. Uh And so I I do hope that people are leaning towards compassion, empathy, understanding. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's never something that I think is stumbled upon. It, it has to be intentional. Right. And, and I, I hope, uh, my, my true hope is that my, excuse me, my voice it's one of the voices that right. can carry forth that, that intentionality is possible, right? No expectation of perfection. There are people who can help you through it. So, you know, I thank you for sharing so much of your experience. Just it, this year mm-hmm. has been, you know, very, very interesting, but, you know, I just love hearing your experiences and, and, and being able to talk about, you know, how we, um, see different things and learning from each other has always been helpful. Mm-hmm. You know, I was very in adamant that one thing I definitely wanted to share on our time together is the influence you've had on me writing. Mm-hmm. And I, I can see exactly where we are sitting. So it must've been internship class during our internship. And we would meet once a week, you know, with everyone doing different internships, but I was sitting, I remember you were sitting right next to me on my right, but I have no idea how this came up. I just remember you saying to me, 
the world needs your your voice girl and I always I have stopped Mm -hmm. trying to like mimic your accent when saying that because I is (laughs) awful so I I (laughs) but I just remember you saying the voice needs your the world needs your voice girl Mm -hmm. and I, I mean, that thing, I hear it every time. I'm like, this is too hard. Good. I'm not writing this book. I'm not doing it. I hear your voice. The world needs your yeah, voice, girl. That was my intention. <laughs> <laughs> it worked. I mean, I even, you know, that's the, that's my file folder right. that all my writing goes into. I mm. even did a blog for a few, for just a little bit. The world needs your voice, girl. Right. Uh, just because it, it is so profound. So, you know, I am, I've, I've taken to a new practice. Um, it went from an experiment to a practice of writing right. 15 minutes a day, which has been much more effective than me trying to sit down and I get all anxious and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Just get the stories out. I can worry about the technical stuff later. And um, when, and I, and I did, I can say I had two published works in 2020, mm-hmm. part of larger works. But when this book comes, I want it to be public record that mm-hmm. you were the fuel. You were part mm-hmm. of the fuel that like kept me going. Um, because the world needs my voice and I have so much gratitude for you for that. Mm. Hey, and, and the reason why I said it is because I've benefited from it. And for me to just keep that to myself, like that's a selfish thing. Right. And like, that's where I've just like, love, I've loved learning from you. And here's the thing. I'm super skeptical of, you know, I loved in your last podcast. Well, the last one I heard the last one available to the general public, such as myself, that, uh, your, your skepticism of some influencers. And I'm like, it's so true. But here's the thing. The reason why I like love pumping you up is because I've been with you when you got a flat tire in Glenway and had to get all four replaced (laughs) and and laughed and called your husband. And you're like, you'll never guess what. We're not just getting one tire. We're getting four. And he was like, oh my gosh, four. Like I, I know you're living this thing because here's the deal. It's easy to slap on a face with the kind of work we do and say the right things, do the right things, post provocative stuff on social media. But it's because I know you live it. That's mm. why I'm like, that's genuine. People will track that. People want to follow that. I, girl, I appreciate. So thank you. Thank you. I, I do endeavor to live it for real, mm-hmm. you know, not just the highlights, but not just the lowlights. Like I want to be transparent, but I have forgotten about that. <laughs> Listen, y'all, oh my gosh, you know, we had those days where we were in class, like we were in school Mm -hmm. all day and we had an opportunity to go get food. Where were we going? Popeye's. We were going to Popeye's. Yes. Mm -hmm. This is when the $5 box. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But we were going to Popeye's and I did. I I like, I got a flat tire and it's like, Mm -hmm. what is happening? And then we pull over and I don't even, why did, oh, I don't know. Whatever happened, I had to get not one tire, but four. And and then we ended up just walking down to Popeye's because like the tire shop was down the street. It was so, you know, I don't know if everyone has the opportunity to have a friend that no matter what's going on, it's fun. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I hope everyone has an opportunity for that because it's amazing. What could have been, you know, oh my God, I can't believe that just right. this whole, like, oh, you know, he hauled mm-hmm. like devastating thing because tires are not cheap. Okay. Uh-uh. Yeah, I was a grad student. I was not mm-hmm. working. We were a one income family of five. 
So it's not just like, you know, oh, just tires and I have an SUV. (laughs) So it could have been so much. And I think had I been by myself, Mm -hmm. the, the opportunity to go down that road would have been, I would have been beckoned to that road, but because I was with my friend, like it became like a joyous day. And I remember us uh, texting our professor, like, Hey, we're probably going to be a little late, uh, flat tire, have to get a whole new set, you know, Mm -hmm. and we were together and that that's awesome. I do remember that. (laughs) Right. And I don't think I've ever asked you about this. Like we went to a pretty small private conservative school, mostly white. What, you know, you came from a a large undergrad (laughs) and then went to that grad school. Like what was, and and I remember LaShonda being in classes with you where people openly denied any form of systemic racism, any form of, basically any form of it in general. Mm Mm-hmm. How was that to just for such, cause we had small classes. Mm-hmm. How was it? Um, you know, here's the interesting thing. Um, so one with the size, I remember driving up the hill, our school is set on top mm-hmm. of a hill, very beautiful view of the city coming up the hill on my, on the day that I was taking the tour. Mm-hmm. And I will always say Valerie Herrick, gave me that tour. And what I said after that tour is if this place contributed to who you are, I want some of that. Like that's, that's what we do when we show up authentically, Mm -hmm. like we can draw people. So the school didn't necessarily draw me, you know, based on my previous experience, someplace like UC or Xavier would have been much more because, you know, coming from the university of Michigan, but I remember driving up that hill, looking around and being like, this is the whole camp. Like how many buildings, (laughs) like it was a very big, like, oh, um, this is so interesting. Mm-hmm. But to be fair, I have only gone to four schools my whole life, right? So mm-hmm. I spent one school, kindergarten, eighth grade, and then a small Catholic high school. So it actually probably felt more natural to me to be at right. a small school than it did when I was at Michigan. So it was interesting from the undergrad experience, but I had been out of school for a decade, mm-hmm. you know, since then. So that wasn't the biggest um challenge. When I started, I started with one class um, and worked my way up. So what I'm I'm saying that to say, I didn't have a lot of involvement on campus. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until really after I gave birth that um, I stopped working and I could be on campus more. And that's when I did begin to notice, um, hey, there's not a lot of black people around here. Um, okay. And this is not just because I'm not on campus much. That's interesting. And then this was kind of around the time where they were beginning to expand their uh, athletic department. And so I very quickly and astutely noticed that they weren't preparing. (laughs) They weren't preparing this very conservative Christian environment Mm -hmm. for what they were trying to do to increase revenue which was going and finding students who um, were going to be athletes at the school and get an education, but did not necessarily have the beliefs mm-hmm. of the, the, the school and its foundation. And, and so it was a very interesting path. What I will say is I think um, it was a practice and opportunity for me to use my voice. Mm-hmm. I am not, I was not, I continue to grow and evolve, I didn't engage with the world the way I do right now back then. 
However, it was this stage for me to be able to work that muscle and to be able to be like, okay, hey, hey, here's the thing. But I also have generally been able to talk about those difficult, challenging things in a way that doesn't make people defensive. Right. So I think people trusted me Mm-hmm. for some of the same reasons that you saw. I'm, I, I was real. I never tried to be fake. I never tried to pretend anything. And so I think people just genuinely saw Shonda. And so then when I would be able to have these conversations, you know, it was like they could listen to me a little differently. Um, right. Now, let's just say I wish we could do social cultural class again. Oh, 100%. I, I, let, let's come back a few years after because I, <laughs> Vicky and I were just talking, you know, um, we've been done with our degree for three years. Mm-hmm. For me, it feels like so much longer. It feels like I've been doing this a lifetime. And I think that's because I have, just not with the degree, right? But I want to bring us all back together. Let's do social cultural again. How right. the quote unquote real world impacted mm-hmm. how, how you see these things. Right. And also even in light of 2020, I think I saw a tweet a couple weeks ago and it was like, hey, white people, did you actually read that copy of White Fragility that you bought three months ago? And just even think of the kind of exploitation side, how like everyone kind of bought the books, put the yard sign, I checked that box. But where is that not? You know, like, where is that? Was that just a sign of like you further exploiting? Yeah. Again, you know? (laughs) As I wrote my temple. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And more. Yes. Um, it, it was, it, it, yeah, it's an experience I'm thankful for. Like, like pretty much all of my experiences. Um, yeah. And in our school actually no longer exists. And that was a, that was a wild thing to observe. I was actually adjuncting there. Um, when mm. the abrupt announcement of its closure and I worked with all freshmen Right. And just being like, oh my God, you know, when you talked about the student visa, I had one student who was from England that like, he had six weeks to figure out what he was going to do. Like right. I'm here conditionally. Mm-hmm. And if that condition changes, even if it was, even though it was completely outside of his control, he had to figure out what that was going to look like. And, and it, it was just, it put everyone in such a challenging position. And so it was interesting to be there. But what I can say is I'm glad I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have the sentimental attachment to the place that uh, a lot of people had. A lot of people had taught there, had been there for a long time, had gone to school there, had done all of that. That, nope, that wasn't me. So I was able to kind of not be that sentimentally um, right. connected, but I, I was a very, I believe, stable force for those I had contact with to say I'm here and whatever you're feeling and I don't know how other people are approaching the class it doesn't matter but I'm like in this space we get real Mm because what else is there and I I think it was refreshing for them to bring all of it the fear the anger the anxiety the sadness the regret you know all of that got to be present right the room with me and that 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 for me is what it's about you know you feel what you feel trying to Mm -hmm. act like you don't it's like we I don't know if this is if this happens in Ireland too but I feel like Americans have perfected the like don't pass gas in public 
so we've learned kind of societally and culturally to hold it in until we get to a place where it's okay to release it, which is usually by yourself. And I use that metaphorically for emotions. We just hold it in that can start to hurt. Pass that gas, please. I mean, I'm not saying you need to be rude. You know what I mean? And, mm-hmm. But it, it, it is, it is a bodily function that right. needs to move through. And, mm-hmm. you know, I get it when you're on a plane, try to hold it. I, that, that's a really, you know, it's contained. I've had that happen. Not fun, but you get my point, right? They didn't have to hold it in. Um, so being connected with the school um, was definitely a learning opportunity. And I, I truly believe that I was able to give back. Mm-hmm. I was able to be real, a real live person, right. uh, which I think is important. So mm-hmm. thanks for asking that. Yeah, because I just, I think it was... It was just an interesting education all around. And I think we were really lucky in looking at what was the majority demographic of that school to have Laura Presley as our, th- as our professor for, what was it, sociocultural? Mm-hmm. That was it called? Yeah, like we were super lucky to have that. And I knew that that was even something new for them. Yeah, for context, Laura's black. Mm-hmm. teaching social cultural yeah I don't know who taught it before and and I will assume that they did their best mm-hmm. but to have someone who actually brings a perspective that is not the dominant narrative is very helpful mm-hmm. you know and and yeah so we were extremely fortunate to have her and I will say that the counseling program was superb mm-hmm. like hands down it just mm-hmm. was it was a good program that i believe did a really good job of equipping clinicians mm-hmm. to kind of go out there um no program could ever prepare you for everything but it really did give us a solid foundation and so for mm-hmm. that like i i do have a lot of gratitude for that um and for me i you know i also it was an opportunity to learn balancing it all you know i want to set you up for <laughs> telling your favorite LaShonda story, which I know, but it was so, this was just my life, but I will lob it over to you to go ahead and tell. Uh, um, yeah. So I think we, you know, we ran counseling sessions out of our, out of the building in which we went to school. And I remember going into our workroom, which was essentially a converted closet, um, that we utilized to write up notes and, Shonda's in there typing up notes, a twin on each leg as she's, she's, I'll never forget you. Like you're bobbing them up and down, but like typing as you go. And I was like, do you, do you need help? And you would always like storm down that corridor with like a baby on each arm, like two car seats and on each arm. And I was like, how does she do this? But I think that's another story that just totally spoke to just your motivation, you know, that, you know, there's instances when, you know, in order for us, for our group therapy class, we had to be in group therapy. They put us in groups together. And I remember every week you want to push yourself and whether it was emotionally in that group therapy or physically bouncing two babies while you did all your notes for your sessions, like it just crazy. I I will always like treasure that memory. I appreciate that. Um, and also, so Joel, he worked in the office at the mm-hmm. counseling center. He came in one day to change the trash or something in the, in the, in the workroom and same thing, like, um, do you need some, 
are you okay? And, and, you know, I look back and I'm like, you know, that was just my life. And, and I don't want to create like, like I, okay, don't get me wrong. I have to look at that. And I got to be honest, I'm wearing a pair of leggings that my husband bought me and it says, <laughs> <laughs> like, that's pretty badass. I, I have to admit it. Right. But it, it, it just, it, it needed to be done. Right. right whatever circumstance it happened, I didn't always have to bring my kids to school. My children are not a burden to me, but for whatever circumstance Mm -hmm. they needed to be with me. And at that point they were probably, Oh goodness. Um, if I'm doing notes during practice, I mean, they were under a year old probably, Mm -hmm. but they could sit up so could hold their head up and could sit up. And, and so, yeah, one on each knee, bounce, bounce, bounce. You type your notes and you keep it going, you know, and then I remember right. like, I, I can hold one. I think you held Sky, and, you know, we did that. And, you know, Joel's like, can I, like, it's just what I do. And I'm like, no, really, it's cool. Like, you know, I got it. We're good. I was very strong. Those car seats, one on each arm, you just go and you uh-huh. do what has to be done. And so I, I do appreciate um, having a practice ground to learn harmony and balance Mm -hmm. because I would move out into the real world in my practice and have to juggle so many things. And I, Mm -hmm. I appreciate having had a space to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, and if that meant, you know, a twin on each leg while you knock out a couple of notes, you know, it's cool. They weren't mobile at the time. So it was good. Like they were going to sit there. (laughs) They, they weren't going anywhere. Um, but when you remind me of those stories, I, I have to admit that it it makes me pause long enough to have a due gratitude to myself. Mm-hmm. Like I think sometimes, you know, we have gratitude for others and the contributions they've made, but we don't sometimes sit and go like, I did that. You know, right. I remember breaking down because I was getting my first non-A in diagnosis, which is the hardest class with oh, the, yeah, um, <clears throat> a professor who expected excellence. And I appreciate that. Dr. Jody Edwards. Yeah. And I remember I was getting a A minus flipping out, just losing my mind after having just had twins. And now I have to go back and be like, girl, listen, right. I need you, right. you know? And, and so I, I have to go back to these moments and realize the lack of grace I had. I don't have to repeat that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sometimes I need to just be like, Hey, it's a lot going on. And I, I've done a really good mm-hmm. job of that in 2020. I can say that just being like, it's a pandemic. There's all these things. going Right. On. Like give yourself a break. But also as well, like what a story of resiliency. You had the girls, you were on one income, five folks. And yet, you know, I remember you bust into your NCE and you looked at me and you said, you know what? I did the best I could. And here I am. <laughs> I listened to study materials in between stuff in the car. And I was like, okay. And then you came out like top in our class. You know, I really think that's something that you're kind of minimizing, to be honest with you, of just like, that's a future episode in itself, right? Like think of how many women in your situation or men or anyone would have been in your situation and said, there's no way I can go back to grad school. There's Mm -hmm. no way I can quit my job and do this. There's no way my partner will work with me on this. Mm -hmm. And yet you had this thing going in which you totally made it work. 
This is why I love Vicky, y'all. You know, she provides perspective. <laughs> it's true. And I do remember <clears throat> the, we had to take a test <laughs> to graduate, essentially. Mm-hmm, and yeah. I, re- I do remember looking around me and people were flipping out, y'all. Like, uh, you know, I'm so anxious and, you know, I studied and, you know, I've been reading and I've been up since this. And I'm like, look. At this I got, point, I got I, the CDs. My, my kids don't sleep. Like I ain't got time for this. I'm still listening. I listen to the CDs, you know, and, and <laughs> it wasn't like I was trying to minimize it. But what I had to realize was this was just one other facet of my life. Now, granted, right. there were some people who were single, no kids and, and things, mm-hmm. and they were able to dedicate more. But I did. I think I can maintain that. I went in like it is what to right. teach. And, and, and I did it. And the reality is, this assessment is a reflection of what I know. Like, mm-hmm. so either I know it <laughs> or I don't. And now I know what I don't know. Um, but I do remember doing that and, and they were trying to, you know, what, you know, get the score and all that. And you don't know, it's not based on like a hundred percent. So you get this number and then that number is an arbitrary number until you, because it's like based on the national average, some crazy, yeah. so you don't know what your number means. But I remember people talking about the number and then I did feel like, okay, I don't want to say my number because my, 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 my number, yeah, that, that, that seems to be a high number right now. <laughs> so right. I didn't want people to feel bad, but then I really like, but I tried to tell them, you got to relax. You're literally blocking your prefrontal cortex. Breathe, mm-hmm. y'all, breathe. You don't, you know it, but you, you're, you're limiting access to what you know. You gotta right. calm down. And at that point, I kind of felt like the old head, you know, with the kids <laughs> and the older one, you know, and all that stuff. But I'm just like, well, take this old woman wisdom <laughs> and breathe. So yeah, it, 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 it is what it is. And sometimes I just have to say to myself, it is what it is. And right that's helpful. But you also never, you know, it's easy. I think as women to get into the polarization of like, I'm either all at home or I'm all at work or I'm all at school or I'm all in this. And you didn't do that. You were like, Hey, I'm not going to make my kids pay for this. You know, if I'm home, I'm going to be present, but I'm also going to, you know, like you definitely did it. You're, you're present in all realms still. There wasn't one part that had to sacrifice in order for you to show up in another. It was definitely a working in balance because mm-hmm. there were these messages. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. The guilt I would feel sometimes for being, not being home with small kids. Y'all I gotta, you know, I do. I think I don't do it enough, but I got to shout out my husband, mm-hmm. my we partner. Love we love Jay because like, here's the biggest thing. And, and I've had, I've been married before, so this isn't mythical. I've had two totally different experiences y'all. And the biggest thing is he supports me the way I need to be supported, Mm. you know? And I remember, I don't remember the context exactly, but I remember, cause I try at one point I was working, I traveled a lot. I got small kids right? Mm-hmm. And there was kind of this, you should, you should be at home. You're the mom, you're the this. And I just remember saying something to Jay and he said, look, I know who I married. Mm. I knew I was going to have to share you with the world. And I was like, whoa. I'm calling for a marriage podcast here. You heard uh, yeah, first. You- <laughs> <laughs> we got something coming for you. We got something okay, coming. Good. I'm glad. <laughs> I was saving all my comments until this. <laughs> No, that's awesome. We got something coming, but that's it. Like 
he knows who I am and I know who he is. And it's this very interesting discovery we, we talked about recently. And it's because he is not even the, the slightest bit intimidated by me. Right. He is not intimidated by my light. He is not intimidated mm-hmm. by my greatness. He is not intimidated by my voice. He's not intimidated by me, intimidated by me at all. Mm-hmm. So because of that, he propels and pushes me forward. He highlights and shines. I mean, it's like whatever you need, because I understand your gift is needed in this mm-hmm. world which is sometimes other people, they are, they're intimidated by someone who makes more money than them or is, has a more front facing or this, this, and this, and, and that's not the case. And so, yeah, I, but it wasn't just this natural thing. I struggled guilt written. Um, oh my God, what are we going to, you know, just this whole thing until it was like, you know what it was, I had to shut out the outside voices. Mm-hmm. I had to do my three questions. I didn't even realize they were my three questions at the time. Who told me that? Like, whose voice is this? Right. This is not my voice. It's mm-hmm. not Jay's voice. Then who else matters? Nobody. Why mm-hmm. we got all these voices in the middle of our relationship? Yeah. Shut that out. So <clears throat> I think once we really got clear, like who are, who are you? Who am I? And who are we? What is our mm-hmm. family? Then we do what needs to be done you know, when it needs to be done. So I can appreciate that. But y'all, this is why you need a friend who can remind you and be like, um, Hey, <laughs> hey remember that? <laughs> but there's this and that I appreciate that so much because I feel like mm-hmm. I do that for people. I do, but mm-hmm. man, it's amazing when you have these mutually enhancing and reciprocal relationships where people can feed into you and fill you the way you do them. And that's who you are for me. Mm, I love I appreciate that friend. You're the same for me. This, we could literally talk. Oh my gosh. (laughs) 100%. And I, you have been a supporter of mine and the podcast Mm -hmm. from day one. Um, Mm -hmm. I love you and I am so grateful for our friendship. Is there anything in closing that you want to share Um, with Mm. the listeners or just anything you want to say before we finish up? I just, I don't know. You know, you, you approached me. I remember one night, I think it was practicum and you were like, Vicki, like I've just got, I don't know what it is. It's like a vision or something, but it's, it's labors of love. And and I don't know what to do with it, but, but it's there and it it hasn't explained itself, but I feel like I just got to keep walking towards it. And I think you nor I had any idea what that would mean. Cause None. girl, I'll tell you right now, like you, this is not just a private practice, you know, which I think maybe we're like, Oh, this could be the name of your private practice. It's like a movement now. And you know, like you've got this book coming, you're doing trainings, you're doing teachings, like you're sharing this message with the world and it's going so amazing. And, and just keep trusting in yourself. Cause I've, I've seen that again, I, I believe in this movement because I've seen it show up in the little things for you, whether it's your four tires, right. Um, or pushing yourself out of your comfort zone in that group we were a part of, but mm-hmm. I've just, there's so much weight to this. There's so much good message to you. And just, I think you've provided, especially in 2020, just an intimate place for people. We talked about that isolation and you bring conversations to people's cars and homes and while they're doing laundry and, you know, that they're not getting right now. So, so just keep bringing it. Thank you, friend. Of course. Love you. It's one of those, I don't even know how long we've gone, but it doesn't matter because this was so good. (laughs) So good. So I thank you. I thank you for being that, that steady constant, um, in my life. We do not talk all the time, 
but that does not mean any love lost. So thank you for being here so much. I want to give a special shout out to Trey Angel, who provides the music for the Labors of Love podcast, to my producer, Jay Sugg from Instant Classic Media, and as always, to you, my listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you'd like to contact me, if you have suggestions for content or guests, please reach out at www.thelaborsoflove.com. We're on all the major social media outlets, and please tune into our new Instagram page specifically for the podcast, The LOL Pod. And as usual, give us that five-star rating, write us a review, and share the podcast. Until we connect again, you all be well.